Sadly, New York City lost one of its trusted hometown news voices. Richard Hake helped to wake up the city as WNYC's Morning Edition host. But the native New Yorker began his public radio career at Fordham University's Voice, otherwise known as WSUV. I'm Robin Shannon. On today's Fordham Conversations, we hear from Richard Hake's friends, co-workers, and people whose lives he touched. My name is Julianne Welby, and I'm senior editor in the news department at WNYC. I'm doing everything from home. Focused I on immigration, policing, <laughs> and security. That would be nice. <laughs> my first memory of Richard Okay, Hague. yeah, let me see if I. Uh... My first memory of Richard Haig is walking into WFUV way back in 1990 and being pointed in his direction by our then news director, Chuck Singleton, because I asked to learn how to do radio news writing. He said, go over and sit with that guy. So Richard was sitting in front of a computer in the old WFUV newsroom. There was a printer nearby because all of our AP Associated Press news uh, copy okay. was printed on a dot matrix right, so printer coming out. And he pulled up the chair gonna, and just started showing me how to write radio stories. And eventually, I was helping him write news stories for his shift. He was live on the air, so he was kind of like the big man in the station, had the really high profile, important job live during monitor radio. So that was the first time I saw Richard, was when he was teaching me how uh, to write where you were, news copy you for might, radio. My, um, my favorite Julian, memory what do you of remember Hake for my, um, my first memory? should I say, Richard what stood out to you about and then we'll Richard go from my first memory, um, what I miss about He was a great teacher from to, the start. Um, he was very willing to show to, the uh, next WFB student before. younger than him how it goes. Okay, okay. He and was patient with his time. Even though he himself was under deadline yeah, yeah. in the radio world and all media, okay. we're all operating under deadlines, I'm Henry especially Fertoli. if you have a live host of the What's hosting shift like he did. Wall Street Journal, um, I'm sure he was setting an example WFUV for me alum. on how to cut reel-to-reel -reel tape of Richard on either an Atari or a Studer with a grease pencil and a razor blade, when I was working and as a he was very adept at that by the time I met him. So he was sort of showing me the way for what I could do. Richard was part of the small I hadn't decided yet that I was going to be in radio, but at that time. I was getting sort of all the tricks of the trade in front of me from Richard. Sort of strolling in, and I was like, yeah, we hear a lot "Wow, that's Richard Hake!" And he was WFTV just such an approachable, accessible guy. And came over to joke with the team and talk with the team, and just walking around, just instantly sort of felt like a friend, memories, a colleague that was because it was thirty years ago, and he was two years older than me, so we certainly traveled in different college crowds. But he seemed like a pretty buttoned up preppy um, guy uh, maybe you know he had like a j crew uh, anorak jacket on pair of khakis you know a nice hair oh, okay. cut that flipped yeah. to the side about him first, um, I think I have that more you know he wasn't okay. like a life of the party boisterous guy he was pretty quiet Richard to himself just having that until he got behind the mic at wfuv and he had this like beautiful years, confident voice just last so summer, I remember, email, you know, seeing him pass by or walk toward Keating Hall on campus, thinking, oh, he's pretty quiet, him, understated guy. But then he knowing him, got back to me with a list for of the brief time I did at WFUV, here's where you go for this, he was here's so confident and almost like a different persona. If you like looking at fun houses and architecture, here's where you go for that. I think Richard leaves quite a few legacies, clearly as a mentor and a teacher and a willing trainer, clearly as someone who 
honored his time Somehow, at Fordham and was proud I started of his at time WN at Fordham. Uh, let me start Frequently that over. talked um, about it. Wore his maroon with pride. I somehow didn't know and before I started at WNYC professionalism. that Richard was from not a very only young a age alum, when he was only 19 or 20. Alum, Richard was acting I've been like a professional about this a lot at WFUV in and was entrusted with so these live hosting roles. The type of and he carried that, that forward for nearly WFUV 30 years at WNYC. After others, so those who came after him at WNYC were sort of set an example. Here's how to behave. Here's how to show up on time. Here's how to meet a deadline. Here's how to interact with your colleagues. For morning I guess that's the final legacy I would mention is that he really whole, showed really, he was a shop how to be a decent and lovely WNYC human being with colleagues and friends. Everyone who worked with him way. loved working with him. Does that make sense? And I, that one again? I think that may be the best like legacy of all. There. My name yes, is Julianne you, Welby. You said, I'm a news um, editor at WNYC. And the thing I'm going to miss most about Richard Haig his personality matched is like the, the, same personality, the fact that I had a lovely um, colleague that, that to pass WFB by like every day at part. WNYC. Yeah, okay. Whether it was just a hello or have I you heard that latest from Fordham, Richard going back to Fordham, or hey, we've got to get this script together and get this recording done. All of it was just delightful. This connection, I'm miss the past couple of days in particular, it makes so much sense in retrospect Fordham because the type of atmosphere life. and personality I'm and mentorship that the general manager at WFUV provides for young and students. For the purposes he of this conversation, also the former career, news director especially at WFUV in the late 1980s and early 90s. He looked out for his team on Morning Edition. He provided an accessible mentor role for many young producers and all of his colleagues, really, as a shop steward for SAG-AFTRA at WNYC. He advocated uh, for those colleagues and, and had a personality that despite and how was one of those students. popular and well-known he, he was with his listeners, say, was always accessible was and available like to sense his colleagues for help or advice or sense just of timing that's required in live radio. He was a real Did natural. You got it that time. And, and um, then you just want to end okay. with your, that your name and your signature Richard Hake sound. Uh, okay. As a college junior. My name is Anne Marie Fertoli, and I'm an alum of Fordham University at Rose Hill and WFUV and Radio. And connecting right away with the circle Thank of students so much in for our news department. <laughs> oh no! He found as someone who last week asked a reporter to do uh, three was, takes uh, of the same interview, had such an enormous <laughs> you understand my pain? Yeah, no, I totally get it. We need to redo it again. Let me know. Thanks so much, Anne Marie. Take care. Take care. Bye -bye. Role and was uh, very generous in sharing that with other students. Yeah. So many of his um, colleagues talk about his fearlessness on Mike. Right. That was uh, one of the first things That's you noticed boring. when working with him. During our news workshops, he couldn't wait to get the headphones on. So he sat down and we put some copy in front of him and turned on the mic. And wow, right away you noticed that great projection that he had. What a bright, friendly sound. He had credibility out of the gate, but somehow also managed to be breezy in his delivery. And when he opened his mouth, right away his delivery just said, made for radio. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon. Today is a remembrance of Richard Hake, the WNYC Morning Edition host who got his start at Fordham University and WFUV died on April 24th, 2020. Today, we hear from those who remember Richard Hake. So Chuck, can you tell me about the documentary Richard did? Well, so the story was 
specifically about the Tenement Museum, the Lower East Side Tenement Museum on Orchard Street. Uh, but uh, I think Richard really used that as a way in to look at immigration to New York in the late 19th and, and early 20th century. If I can talk for a minute about um, how he got there, once we put Richard on newscasts, you know, we put him on morning newscasts, and uh, that's not the place that most journalism students start out. Uh, you don't put the newbie out front. Uh, and of course, he excelled there, and then he continued to advance. And then we started carrying a live national daily news show. Richard said, I want to try that out. And he proved himself there. Uh, his timing going in and out of network was just perfect and uh, like he'd always done it. From there, he advanced into produced work, uh, that sound-rich storytelling uh, that you hear on WFUV and uh, on NPR. And then in his last year at Fordham, he took my audio production class, and the final project was to conceive, research, and produce a radio feature. And again, I, I think he knew where he was going. So his love of New York history and culture led the way, and he decided to do that extended story on the Lower East Side. During the day, the streets of the Lower East Side are filled with shoppers, merchants, cars, and delivery trucks. It looks much like any part of the city on a warm spring day, but the first time I walked down Broom Street, it was dark. A light rain hit my face as the odor of smoke from a smoldering mattress filled the air. Behind the haze, turn-of-the-century fire escapes hanging from the sides of buildings, some like fancy opera house boxes. But looking down from one of those opera boxes, you see the reality of the 1990s staring back at you. A great roll-down wall covering virtually every inch of the block, but only on the first floor. Above these skirts of steel, five floors of bricks stained by time. These are the mother buildings of the Lower East Side, the tenements. Their windows have watched the children turn into adults, the horses and wagons turn into Model Ts and T-Birds and Toyotas. The Irish brogues became Yiddish, became Italian, became Chinese and Spanish. Through it all, under the feet of the kids playing stickball, under the hooves of the horses and under the wheels of the pushcarts, you see the Belgian paving blocks have never been covered with asphalt. A footstep on them today echoes with history. Let's follow those blocks around the corner and into the past, where on Orchard Street at the turn of the century, a world of a soft yellow glow of gas lighting, awning-covered sidewalk markets, and people dressed in modest yet lovingly made clothing. We're at 97 Orchard Street. Seven steep iron steps lead up to the front door. Inside, tiny black and white floor tiles line dark, narrow hallways with four railroad-style apartments on each floor. Three rooms linked together like a rail car on the tracks of history. Very strange, very strange. I couldn't believe I was coming up the steps and I, I can't believe these are the same steps, you know. And when I got in the building, it was sort of like going back in time and, and you're finding yourself in another place, like another era. It's sort of like a dream, you know, when you, you dream things and you don't know why you're there and how you got there. It's, very amazing. That was Josephine Baldizi Esposito. She lived at 97 Orchard Street from 1931 to 1935, the final years before it was condemned. 
The building stood silent and untouched like a tomb of memories for 53 years. But now in 1990, she returns to her childhood home to see it come back to life, this time as the Lower East Side Tenement Museum. A my mother was the first victim. But that wasn't enough for them, my lords. They robbed me of my honor. I begged them to kill me instead. On Sunday afternoons, so visitors can see what tenement life was really like. An actor dressed in turn-of-the-century clothing takes people on historic walking tours, starting in the museum and ending on the crowded streets of the Lower East Side. The first floor of the building houses the museum's gallery. There's a small stage for the living history performances, and tenement artifacts sit on small shelves. Pictorial exhibits such as the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire adorn the walls. The upper floors are not open to the public. The museum is working on a $3 million capital campaign to buy the building and restore the apartments to what they looked like at the turn of the century. A flashlight is needed as the tenement museum's Lawrence Freed guides the way up the narrow, steep wooden staircase. The floorboards creak, paint and plaster are peeling from the ceiling. The walls are lined with exposed gas pipes. It's musty, damp and cold. A hint at what life was, was like in the tenement. This toilet would have been for those two families, and this one for the front two. This is Mrs. Baldizi's, Mrs. Esposito's apartment. Baldizi is her maiden name. And her bedroom was there. The Here was the stove, and our bedroom was in there, in the smaller room. And we had a table here with chairs. The apartment was very small. But it didn't seem that way to me because I was small then. And the the room in the back that goes to the air shaft that was very dark and very small. But the front room, which was my parents' bedroom, that was kind of bright and had windows leading to Orchard Street, which was very exciting. Loaded with people and peddlers and noises and confusion, and we more or less would. Uh, love looking out, watching them set up their wagons and the routine, the way they did it so easily was amazing how they knew how to put everything together and they'd stay like that all day and then close everything up at night and then do it all over again the next day. Ruth Abram is founder and president of the Lower East Side Tenement Museum. She tells us that in 1863, two years before the end of the Civil War, a Prussian immigrant named Lucas Gluckner built 97 Orchard Street. We had a severe housing crisis. So when Lucas Gluckner took this space, 25 foot wide by 100 foot deep, originally designed for single family homes, and placed a building there that would accommodate 24 families, it was considered a good idea given the housing crisis. When he built this building, there were no housing laws in the city of New York at all. And this building makes clear what it means when we build without uh, consideration for ventilation, for uh, safety, for plumbing, etc. It wasn't until four years after the building went up that New York passed its first housing law, and that in 1867 required landlords to provide fire escapes and outdoor privies one for every 20 persons. Now we hope to do an archaeological dig in our courtyard to determine whether our landlord complied and to what extent. And also our archaeologists tell us that privies are great time capsules and that we will learn a great deal about life in the tenement 
by digging deep. But in 1901, the reform movement called for New York City housing legislation. Improvements were made at 97 Orchard Street. They would seem grim for us today, but as Ruth Abram explains, for the immigrant, it was luxury. But what was extraordinary, don't you think, is when the landlord knocks on your door and says, Sir, I'm going to provide you with your own water in your own apartment. We're going to make the ventilation better by cutting you windows, and there will be a toilet in the hall. Now that must have felt as if the promised land was coming to fruition right be before your eyes. The decorative linoleum floor in the middle room has worn away, exposing another layer of floor. Here there was a stove, a sink, and a bathtub that was covered with a wooden board acting as a makeshift dinner table. Mrs. Baldizi Esposito remembers how her family managed to keep clean and bathe with cold water most of the time because it's expensive to heat the water. And I think we took a bath once a week. We sponged ourselves every day because my mother insisted she would stand by the sink and show us how to sponge yourself down and the water would be always cold. And then when we took our bath, that's when we got hot water. And sometimes my father would take us over to the public bathhouses and get a bath there. A flickering light casts shadows on the exposed wallboards as Ruth Abram explains how the immigrant era was not a sort of golden age, but a time of hardship and danger. We are in what is clearly a fire trap, and was clearly a fire trap then. Uh, without fire escapes and with coal-burning stoves in which the coal is all forever jumping out onto the wooden floor, when you keep on hand as a regular uh, household stuff, kerosene and benzene, the place is a tinderbox. Without fire escapes, imagine getting out of a fire. Imagine getting out of a fire if you're handicapped. You've, only, you've got to walk down narrow, narrow stairs, and many, many of them, or try to get yourself up to the roof and leap from rooftop to rooftop. Is that the golden age? I say no. Is it the golden age when the only source of water is in a spigot in the courtyard, and you, even in the dead of winter when you have to do your laundry, haul your sheets and pillowcases and clothes out to the courtyard, and in the dead of winter with the snow falling around you, scrub, scrub, scrub with the cold water and your scrub board, and then hang these clothes to freeze in the wind. Is that the golden age? Not if you're doing the washing. Is it the golden age when in the dead of night, uh, instead of being able to turn the corner or open a door and go to the toilet, you have to find your way down the stairs, dimly lit if at all, into the courtyard outside and go to the privy, which may, and you may find yourself in line with many people before you in the dead of the night. Is that the golden age? Not if you need to use the privy in the evening. So <laughs> I say no, it wasn't the golden age, and yet uh, I think one of the reasons that there is this feeling about it is that people who have lived through this experience do feel, once they're somewhere else, somewhere that most of us would consider easier, better, do look back with a certain fondness. Now why? Because there was no privacy available here, and therefore a kind of community sprung up that it cannot be replicated in our middle-class environments. Mrs. Baldizi Esposito says the building was full of all types of ethnic groups. It's here we see community. Right next door to me was Mr. and Mrs. Respizio, who are my brother's godparents. 
and she would make us pancakes on that big black coal stove. She made the greatest pancakes. And one time, she used to sprinkle the regular sugar over them, you know, I guess we had no syrup. And one time she sprinkled salt by mistake. And she had the greatest pancakes, and we would bit them, oh! You could imagine, in the window in the air shaft, I would face Mrs. Rosenthal's window across the shaft, and she would wave to me, this little old lady all in black. I think she was in black, it looked dark. And she would call me to come in, and I'd have to shut the lights or put the lights on for her because it was Chavez, and uh, she wasn't allowed to touch the electricity. And they used to light the candles and have their Chavez on the weekend. And that was sort of like a job for me to do. I don't know if I got paid for it or anything. I don't remember any of that. I just remembered I liked doing it, uh, that I thought it was uh, something rewarding to me that she picked me to do that, and I was happy to do it. and the neighborhoods of the Lower East Side. Ruth Abram tells of one of the immigrant professions. The Baldizi child says that her father was called the, the carpenter on Orchard Street by the neighborhood and was understood to be the carpenter on Orchard Street. Well, that, that sets this man in the community, on the street, associates him with the name, gives him a profession that everyone knows about. And he must have fixed plenty of doorways and locks and windows in this area. Plus he worked on the Bowery here, a uh, place called Home Bars, and he made beautiful furniture. And as a matter of fact, he told the story one time that he, he fixed a door in the village for Eleanor Roosevelt, which he'd come home and he said to me, guess who I saw today? And we couldn't imagine. He said, Eleanor Roosevelt, I was on the floor fixing the doorway, putting in a new door or something, and he heard this voice, and he looked up, and there she was, he couldn't believe it. Mrs. Esposito moved to Brooklyn in 1935 and has lived there ever since. She remembers her new spacious apartment with its own bathtub and private bedrooms. With the smell of the trees, she thought she was in the country, but she will never forget the memories of 97 Orchard Street. For some reason, something here, well, we, you know, you, you're drawn, these are your roots. You remember the, the childhood here, the first impressions were here, you know? And uh, I just never forgot it, and always, it's always been part of me. I remember the Christmas tree. We were very poor, but my father made sure we had a tree, and he would go out and, and what people would cut off some people cut the tops and the bottoms, you know, make it smaller. He would put it all together, being that he was a cabin maker, he knew how to do that well. And then he would tack it to the wall, make sure it wouldn't fall down, you know, and all that. And then he'd decorate it the night before, and, and I remember we'd be peeking, you know, trying to sneak and look at it, and I loved it. I would make believe I was sleeping, but I would be watching that tree all night. But he always had a tree for us. Josephine Esposito says her parents tried to make life as comfortable as possible for their children. She had one brother, John Baldizi. He and I would, you know, pass our time playing in the apartment and sometimes sit out front on the stoop here and play cops and robbers, you know, 
Well, at that time, uh, the uh, cars had running boards, so we would jump on a running board and play cops and robs, kick in the can. And I played with another little girl upstairs. Her name was Rita, who was still in very close. And uh, we'd play in the yard with my mother's clothes and things. We'd take my brother and play beauty parlor. So we really had a good time. Jump rope, play cards. We got through the years okay. Them that's got shall get, them that's not shall lose. So the From Ellis Island, the immigrants spilled into New York, flooded its streets, and filled thousands of buildings just like 97 Orchard Street. The Irish and the Germans left, the Jews and the Italians moved in, and the movement continues. Today, we see the new immigrant. When you walk the streets of Lower East Side today, as was true in the, from the beginning, it is likely that you hear languages other than English. And whereas once you heard German, or particularly, or uh, Irish brogue, or uh, Gaelic even, um, or I mean, sounds of many different Italy, Italian countries, today you're likely to hear any one of many Asian dialects, uh, any one of many Spanish, dialects and um, the life goes on here people continue to uh, settle on the Lower East Side. We were all types here mostly Jewish and Italian I think and then Chinese. I was born in Chinatown Elizabeth Street of course it grew and grew it swelled. Are they are people crowded today? Of course. Um, do people live uh, in a way that both they and we hope they will eventually not live, yes. Upstairs, there was one apartment with like four or five men that came from Italy, and they used to live together, almost like what they do today. They lived together, share the rent, you know, and go to work, and probably mostly digging, you know, real uh, construction workers, and mailing money back home, and then later on bringing the families here, just like they're doing today, it's all the same. So that when you walk out on the street and see the next person, who is newly arrived, or only here a year or two or three, you will realize that that person will be the revered great-grandparent sometime from now. God bless the child, the immigrant. But don't take too much. I'm Richard Hake, WFUV. But that was one of the things, uh, hearing that piece uh, and seeing the way he worked on Mike, that. Um, yeah, it was very clear to me at the time. This is a, a young man who's walked in the door and he's tried on a career and without any hesitation, he's decided this is my life's direction. You know, I'm going to be a public radio journalist. I think he was entertaining. Um, he was um, the kind of host who had a, a unique combination of skills. You know, something that struck me about him was that he excelled in both uh, narrative storytelling and breaking news. And um, those two talents aren't often found in the same person, uh, honing a carefully produced piece uh, and flying by the seat of your pants when the clock says you've got uh, three seconds to go back to network. Uh, so I think uh, that's something that served him really well in his time at uh, WFUV and WNYC. Um, I think Richard's personability was uh, really exceptional. 
and I think he uh, put people at ease um, when you listened to him on the radio and probably when you worked with him too uh, as a veteran producer. I think he had a, uh, a unique perspective on things. I think in a lot of ways it was uh, really informed by uh, his love of being in front of the mic, uh, being a journalist, uh, but also combined with uh, how much he loved New York City, what that meant to him, uh, including its history, which was obvious from that tenement piece. One of the great things about Richard was, was that way of giving back. Uh, as his career progressed, he, he brought what he learned back to WFUV and shared his talents and wisdom with uh, later generations of young journalists, uh, speaking to WFUV's news workshops and then Fordham communication classes and so forth. And I think we were so proud of his accomplishments at WNYC, you know, starting as a reporter there in 1991 before he even graduated, uh, continuing to develop his work and, and to grow in stature, uh, and then landing the morning job, uh, the morning edition host position. That was really just so gratifying to see uh, for all of us who'd worked with him at WFUV. I never lost uh, that pride in hearing him every morning, uh, hearing him as a listener, but uh, also as someone who had worked with him way back when uh, enjoy and enjoying all of his good work. I'm Beth Noble. I'm an associate professor of communication and media studies at Fordham's Rose Hill campus, and uh, I teach journalism. And what is your first memory of Richard Hake? My first memory of meeting Richard Hake uh, dates back to what I think is my first semester at Fordham in the spring of 2007. Uh, we have a scholarship that we offer called the Walsh Scholarship, um, which we give to uh, an outstanding junior for uh, a good chunk of their tuition for senior year. Um, and Richard won that scholarship when he was a student and has been, um, had been on the selection committee um, going back to 2007. And, um, you know, if you are a public media, public radio junkie the way I am, then meeting Richard Hake was like a rock fan meeting Mick Jagger or one of the Beatles. Like, I was just absolutely starstruck to meet him, um, having listened to him for so long on the radio. And, you know, when you, um, when you see someone in broadcasting or you hear them on the radio, they really feel like a friend. They really, you just, develop a personal relationship with them. That's one of the reasons why broadcasting works as a medium. And so, uh, you know, I met Richard um, at one of the meetings having to do with the scholarship, or maybe it was the party where we actually awarded the scholarship. And I was, I was flummoxed. I was flabbergasted. I was, you know, tongue-tied to meet the actual Richard Haig. And of course, um, you know, he completely put me at ease. Um, he was, you know, so, so tall and kind of had a regal bearing about him and and handsome and charming, but not a, a fake bone at all. He was just so down to earth and so nice. And, you know, we had a really great talk about um, my experience working for public radio and his experience at Fordham. Um, and he, he said at the end, like, you know, if there's anything I can do for you or your classes or the department, you know, just let me know. Here's my card. Let me know. And, you know, every time I asked him for something in the years that followed, 
he would do it with such a gracious heart, you know, hey, Richard, could you come to class? Sure. Hey, Richard, could you give a student an interview? Sure. What do you need? Uh, Richard, I have a question about something. Could you answer it? Yeah, of course. He was, um, you know, just the, the alumnus that you, you dream of having, not only in terms of him being so giving back to the students who came after him, um, but just being such a, a, a good colleague and a good person. Um, and, um, you know, every time I would see him in the years that followed, it was just, you know, just such a joy to, to see his success and, and to be able to point to him, to our students, to go like, wow, here's somebody who made it. Like, look at, at, at what he did. And, um, you know, there's an example that you can come from Fordham and have a great career in journalism. Yeah, it's, it's hard and it's competitive, but look, look at Richard. Like, we've got people who have made it to the top and are still such wonderful giving people. Beth, what kind of legacy do you think he's going to leave behind, whether it be at Fordham, uh, at NYC, or at WFUV? So at Fordham, you know, we, I personally would, you know, love to do something in his honor. Uh, we haven't had a chance to discuss that, but I think, you know, it would be great if we could do that. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, of his, of Fordham more generally, um, you know, there's, there's definitely a hole where, where he was. He was such a um, incredibly giving alumnus and did so much for the, the journalism students in our department, uh, for the students elsewhere in communications who won that Wall Scholarship, um, and for students at, at FUV. Um, you know, he would come to the station, I know, and, and give master classes. And, and Richard was also a very giving member of our public media MA programs. So uh, three years ago, we started a program at Fordham Public Media. It's only the second public media master's program in the country, and um, it's the only one in New York where we try to uh, uh, train students to take roles at uh, public and nonprofit uh, journalistic organizations and also in nonprofit uh, strategic communication, uh, nonprofit organizations. And Richard was on the advisory committee for our master's program, but we have a, a class that actually meets um, in the spring semester at WNYC taught by uh, Julianne Welby, um, who's a uh, colleague of Richard's from Fordham who works at WNYC and uh, George uh, Bodarki, the uh, news director at WFUV, who's also a graduate of our program. Um, and I know that Richard was a, a, a frequent visitor um, to the students there. If he was around in, you know, in the evenings, um, he would come by. And sometimes he would just make the time to come in in the evening to meet with the students, um, to talk with them. And when you're, you know, your morning starts at you know, 3 or 4 in the morning, as his did at WNYC, to get someone to come to class in the evening when they should be asleep um, shows that they're really dedicated to the, to the cause of, of public radio. I'm Beth Noble. I'm a professor at Fordham University. Um, and the thing that I'm going to miss the most about Richard Hake is his straightforwardness. My name is Mayan Levinson, and my first memory of Richard Hake is when I was board operating at uh, WNYC during the annual or semi-annual pledge drives. And I was running the board when Richard was doing All Things Considered and before that, the takeaway. And one of my favorite memories of working with Richard is we had a, a match going on. When we had a match going on during the pledge drive, we played this, what we call the jingle uh, match music and it was this funky little kind of Latin number and he would cue me and we would just have a little fun sort of dancing before we open on the mics 
and then we would pot it down a little bit and Richard would get into uh, into the, the pledging uh, with his partner. But it was just such a wonderful memory, just the joy um, that Richard had during the pledge drives and he was doing it for hours and hours, but just my personal memory is that wonderful, the pledge, the music, the jingle match was playing. We were all sort of doing our dancing and asking for dollars. Can you remember the jingle and do you feel comfortable giving us a taste of it? Sure, let me try it. Yeah, that, 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 that. It was almost, <sighs> it's hard to do, but it was kind of like a jaunty little, yup, up, 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 up. Yep, and if you played, it's probably totally different. But the point was, it was a little fun thing. We did a little dance, and then uh, then we got into you know into the pledge. But it continued with that fun spirit where Richard would sort of set it up. He's like, "Hang on a second, wait a minute." I think he would cue me, and we play the music. Um, so I think between us having fun with it and probably the audience of the listeners knowing, oh, we're gonna have some fun now. It's, it's, it's we gotta do some business here. We gotta ask for some money, but at the same time, let's have fun with it. And Richard had fun with it. So um, Mayan, what stood out to you most about uh, Richard Haig? What stood out most for me about Richard was his absolute professionalism. Um, you know, having worked in radio so many years, just he, just knew his business. He would, especially when he was working during the pledge drive with people who were maybe not as good about hitting the timing every time, he would coax people, he would get people to exactly where they needed to be to wrap it up and to hit that post. Uh, but it was his professionalism, his incredible sense of just giving and, and, and humor, um, and just this wonderful attitude. I mean, you know, he's getting up and God knows what time to do these morning shows, but he is there, he's having fun, he's interacting, and he's just, just a professional. Mayan, what legacy do you think Richard is gonna leave for his listeners? I think the legacy that Richard is gonna leave for his listeners is probably just his, oh gosh, his connection with the audience, with the people who were getting up with him every morning. I think his, his quote was, he woke New York. And it's, it's just that beautiful, familiar voice breaking down the news of the day, which could be scary, um, but he's going to talk about it. You know, it's going to be national, but it's going to be local. It's going to be important to the listeners in New York City. And he's going to bring it to you in a way that you can relate to it and connect to it. And as your friend and, and, and partner, maybe on the radio, it was such a wonderful joy to hear him, uh, to work with him professionally, and then just to hear him every morning, and to have that knowledge of like, okay, I know what studio he's sitting in, and I know how he's sitting, and how he's maybe talking a little bit with his hands, and, and it's just a wonderful uh, legacy. You know, professionalism, I don't want that to sound like it's something cold or something, but he was a true professional, but not you know, but a human being and, and just so committed to it and committed to the people he worked with. Almost, it sounds like he was, um, just from the interviews I get, <clears throat> a lot of people say professionalism, but he was good at what he does or did, but also good to the people around him. You know, that's what it seems like. Because I never got a chance to meet him. You know, I've never met right. him. I've never oh, you did? To okay. him. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was wonderful because, you know, like, you know, he's like on the air talking to someone else hitting the intercom button, talking to the board op, if it was me or somebody else, but in all in just 
It doesn't matter. You know, there's no hierarchy. He could be the host. I could be running the controls, but it's still this, um, this level of professionalism. Um, that was just such, such a wonderful thing. And just how we could juggle, um, because he's doing an interview live. He was looking at his notes, but it all sounds like, as, as any good radio should sound like, it's the first time he's asking these questions. And right, he's right. his own voice to it. My name is Mayan Levenston, and there's a couple things that I'll personally miss about Richard Hake is just, as I said, his professionalism, his commitment to the craft, always encouraging. Uh, he, I, I was able to do a little interview with him. He was going around the station talking to staff members um, about what they do on the weekends, and we had a nice little interaction. He asked me some great questions. He really let me give my answers out and flesh it out. So that's one of the things that I'll, I'll remember. And also, if I may, um, he was also very encouraging of me professionally. I had a chance to apply for an anchor position at WNYC, and he was really encouraging of me to apply. He was in the interview process. And again, I can't thank him enough for caring about me. From your family, friends, and fans, we'll miss you, Richard Hake. For WFUV's Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.